Five games. How about Aurelvis Martinez getting a new arm, getting a new look, and unloading an absolute blast by Aurelvis Martinez. He crushed 30 of them last year in double-A. He's got his first of the spring. Uh, he's got a lot of power. There's no question about that. Hello and welcome to At The Letters, the March 8th edition of the podcast produced by Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. I'm Ben Nicholson-Smith here in Toronto, and Arden Zwelling is still in Dunedin, Florida as we speak, (laughs) still giving us the coverage of the Toronto Blue Jays. Arden, how's it going down in Florida? Good. It's like, you know how quickly time goes down here where you kind of like look up and you're like, how is it 4 o'clock p.m. already? I've been working since 6. And I have that feeling just with like the fact that a week has passed. I can't believe it was a week ago that we were sitting in that radio booth recording the last episode. That doesn't feel like that was a week ago at all. I know. It does feel really recent. And yet a lot has happened since then. The Jays continue churning through their starting rotation uh, so we'll get to some of the latest developments with their starting pitchers touch on some prospects of course Vlad Jr. I mean we, we have to touch on on that as well because he is withdrawn from the World Baseball Classic after getting injured on Friday so you know there is some news but I totally relate to you on that point because you know you get into that rhythm of spring training especially the six seven week spring training that we have and it's just you know you kind of at least for me when I'm in the midst of one of those stretches and I'm just just coming off of one now, it's just like one chunk at a time. It's you have to drive here, you have to be at this availability, you have to do this, you know, hit, then you have to write this story and then it's, okay, get back to the next place. So, you know, it almost, because there is so much variation as far as what it looks like day to day, Fort Myers to Bradenton to Dunedin or whatever the case, you do end up, you know, really looking at it in these small chunks and then time flies as a result. Well, and you're coming off of the winter when time goes pretty slowly as well, yeah. right? So it's uh, it's kind of the contrast. Uh, but like, look, I, I think people are probably sick of hearing me say this by now, but I love covering spring training. And I know I do this spiel every year, but I, I honestly love it because every morning I walk into the Blue Jays clubhouse and at this point in camp, there's 60 plus players there. Uh, so it's not just the 26-man roster. It's not just the 40-man roster. It's a ton of minor leaguers as well. And it's a, a ton of players who have played together coming up through the organization. It's every coach in the organization, every front office person, all the people who like work out of Dunedin during the regular season or who rove around to affiliates. Everyone's in one place, and you are in that place every day. So as far as gathering information and talking to people and just gaining insights – I'm sure you relate to this, but like I have conversations now that I will be referencing in months, right? That will carry me through the season. I'm getting information now that is setting up everything else I'm going to do during the regular season. So the access is just unprecedented in the scope of a major league regular season. And also nobody's in a slump yet and nobody's injured yet. Nobody's spent hours on the trainer's table yet. Nobody's burned out from the grind. Everybody is like eager and excited to start the season. So everyone's in a good mood and everyone's happy to talk. Uh, and everybody is sort of refreshed after the off season. For, so for all those reasons and more, like I, I love this assignment every year. Yeah, being at spring is awesome. And I think, yeah, for, for some of those very reasons, we talked about it a couple episodes ago, just the idea of how... At this point, we maybe have a tendency 
those of us in the media to gravitate toward the more positive outcomes, you know, in our minds. We don't necessarily think of, hey, what happens if Chris Bassett and Jose Barrios get hurt? But, you know, we're not alone in that. The players themselves are thinking that this is going to be their year. This isn't fake. Like, they're not sitting there, you know, inventing it. They actually believe, as you would hope for competitive athletes in this environment who have succeeded at most points in their lives to this point, like, yeah, they're they're expecting that it's going to go well for them. And collectively, they expect it's going to go well. And you hear it mentioned, you know, kind of cautiously at times. Like, I'm not, I don't get the sense that guys are out there trying to make huge statements or trying to make headlines with it. But when I ask players what their hopes are for the season, <laughs> people aren't shying away. Like, they'll say we want to win it all. They'll say we want to be the last team standing. That's the expectation for this group. Yeah, because what are you doing here if not? Right. I'm sure that they're saying that even in the Pittsburgh Pirates camp. And I'm sure they're saying that even in the Kansas City Royals camp, right? Uh, clubs that likely aren't going to be very good this year. I'm, I'm sure they're saying those things as well. As well. And maybe off the record, they're a little more realistic or they talk more about, well, it's about development. And we want to see how this guy works at the big league level or whatever. But that's also where we're fortunate, Ben, in that we are covering a team that's trying to win a World Series right now. And that is spending money at a historic clip for this franchise and that has like incredible four five six win players literally all around the clubhouse you walk in that clubhouse every day and it's like there's george springer there's bro bichette there's vladimir Guerrero jr there's alec manoa he was like a cy young finalist last year uh you know there's kevin gosman who uh you know things <laughs> could have been in that conversation if you'd had a bit a bit better luck as we're going to talk about later on in the podcast like there is they're just exceptional players and tons of talent all around so that also is making this spring training a lot of fun to cover because i don't show up every day like geez what am I going to write today? Like, how am I going to find an interesting angle today? You just walk in that clubhouse every day and look around and there there's interesting stuff to write about and to talk about everywhere. Exactly. That's that's definitely the case. And you mentioned Manoa. So let's start right there, because that was the story of the day in Dunedin against the Twins. They, you know, three and a half hour trip or three hour trip from Fort Myers it wasn't the best lineup that they sent up there. Um, but um, but as you generous, wrote, ben. yeah, yeah, wasn't exactly Jorge Polanco and Byron Buxton gracing TD Ballpark at the game today. But, you know, there's there's a chance in this for Manoa to do something more than just build up. And he did pitch into the fourth inning for the first time this spring. So, you know, that in itself is is kind of step one to make sure that you're building that bulk. But even beyond that, it seemed like he was trying to find some ways to challenge himself and to make sure that he's getting something out of this from a developmental standpoint. Well, just to underscore your point about the lineup, the starting nine for the Twins today had uh, 160 MLB games played cumulatively in 2022. So together, all nine of them had a full season uh, and 112 of them belonged to Willie Castro. (laughs) So that's the that is the uh, caliber of competition. So if Alec Manoa went out on Wednesday and got pieced up by that lineup, it would be like, whoa, what is going on here? Uh, He didn't. Alec Manoa was exceptional, but his stuff was really, really good, obviously. Uh, And but I think that the cool thing for Alec here on Wednesday was he didn't have scouting reports on these guys like he didn't have heat maps. He didn't know their tendencies like he didn't know anything about them. So he was able to just go out on the mound and feel his way through an outing. And I'm sure you've had similar conversations, but whenever I ask people with the Blue Jays, like, you know, talent evaluators, whoever, 
why is Alec Manoa so good with a 94 mile an hour fastball, like a league average strikeout rate, not a ton of swing and miss? Like, how does he post a 2 2 ERA? And now is he a finalist for Cy Young Award? They say this guy makes elite in-game adjustments like this guy is really really good at reading swings understanding how his stuff plays against a hitter's game plan deciphering what lineups are trying to do against him understanding what he has that day and what he doesn't sequencing setting pitches up tunneling all that stuff like this guy is just constantly computing in game and making adjustments based off of the feedback that he's getting in real time. So an outing like this where he literally knows nothing about these hitters going in is huge for Alec Manoa because he really gets to test his ability to do that. So it was cool to watch him go through that process today and then to actually kind of talk to him about it afterwards as well. Spring start of the season, Manoa is driven to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. Chase the slider wide into the glove. Manoa's first strikeout of the afternoon. The batter has Yeah, nasty slider helps for sure in all of that. And his willingness to challenge hitters. I mean, this is someone who, right from the first moment that we saw him in big league spring training a couple of years ago, he really has not hesitated to challenge big league hitters. And like you said, the stuff isn't Jacob deGrom level, but it's definitely good enough. And so that's a big step for him. And you know, it's one of the reasons that he is or that he was the Cy Young finalist that he was last year. And, and you know, I get the sense he hasn't necessarily said it in so many words, but I definitely get the sense that, you know, when you look at some of the projections, they project some regression for Alec Manoa. They would suggest that he is not going to be at the same level that he was in 2022. I get the sense that he takes a little bit of motivation from that and that those um, those are, are projections that are that he would love to prove wrong and is pretty intent on doing that. He was like 92 today, also, Ben. I mean, he had, uh, I think he only had four whiffs. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the stuff today, like, it looked really good, but uh, it wasn't like blowing hitters away. Today was a good example of him sort of toying with some of the adjustments he wants to make this year in order to beat those projections in order to keep getting the amount of weak contact that he has, which is why like those projection systems aren't going to love him because the ball's in play a lot. Um, but he wants to continue doing the things he can to move pitches off the barrels of bats. So he wants to throw his change up a lot more this year. He wants to throw it a lot more right on right, which is something that he rarely did in 2022. I mean, he wants to use a lot more first pitch sliders. He wants to use off speed to set up fastballs a lot more. It's like, it, it, but a lot of it honestly is just him getting in the arena and feeling his way through an outing. I think this is why sometimes you see him struggle early in outings and then kind of figure it out. And then in the first inning, you're kind of scratching your head like, wow, is he going to get through four today and then you look up and it's the seventh and he's still going because of those adjustments that he makes a good example um and it goes both ways right so a good example today was uh the the twins starting the outfield a guy named matt walner and like alec manoa doesn't even know who he is right he's okay like, he played a futures game he's okay he debuted late last year uh manoa when i was talking to him about it after the game called him oh yeah the big lefty <laughs> right like uh didn't even know his name right but so first plate appearance Manoa gets him to ground out first pitch change up second plate appearance. Manoa starts him with two fastballs that he doesn't offer at then throws a change up that he does and fouls off. So Manoa's like, oh, you're sitting change up like you're sitting on my off speed. Clearly. All right. Here's another fastball. And what and credit to Matt Walner 
dude made his own adjustment and laced that thing to left center field, like the hardest hit ball of the day in a double. And I swear you could see on the mound, like Manoa and his competitiveness, like nodding at him, like, all right, I see you. Wait till we run this back. I see what you did there. Like Manoa loves that interplay in games and like loves those adjustments versus adjustments. And it's like, it's a very old school baseball thing. It's a very pure baseball thing it's a treat to watch honestly it's cool like as much as it would be a treat to watch Jacob deGrom strike out like 40 percent of the batters he faces it is also kind of cool to see some of the gamesmanship and tactical uh interplay that goes on in Alec Manoa out and his recognition of the hitter there too whose name already escapes me I'm sorry to say but um it sounds just sort of similar to like a Juan Soto or even a Vlad Jr. will do it sometimes where they'll kind of acknowledge a called strike by the opposing pitcher that's like hey that was pretty good you know yeah and you'll see Manoa doing that throughout his his outing like nodding at guys he interacts with hitters a lot he talks to hitters a lot you'll see this Uh, he talks to himself a lot it's going to be interesting to see how much of that how much room there is for that with the pitch clock uh Alec Manoa one of the slowest workers for the Blue Jays last year and has had to make the adjustment to the to the pitch clock um and it's gone well like he's had a great tempo and rhythm in games uh he had a bunch of twins hitters today like calling time uh and stepping out because of how quickly he was working I know Manoa's been working on this stuff in bullpens and in side sessions and on improving his rhythm and his tempo and he is working noticeably quicker in these games and I think he is a guy who a la Chris Bassett like wants to weaponize the pitch clock and wants to use it to like dictate the pace of his outings and wants to because if once a pitcher gets a handle of it they really can use it to their advantage so I like I do think that's going to be something that Alec Manoa incorporates here but also it's going to mean yeah probably less interplay with hitters uh, maybe a little less time for him to think which could be like a good or bad thing for a guy who's trying to make adjustments in game like you can almost picture him last year right walking around the mound rubbing up the baseball thinking what do i want to throw next what the last swing look like what you know and he's mining that data like i was saying with those prior plate appearances like that data from that game of what did this guy do last time what did i get him with last time what it looked like he was sitting on so maybe he's got a little bit less time to do that but when he's working quickly, uh, it's it's a hard thing for a hitter when he's coming at you four seamer sinker change up uh, curveball or slider, excuse me, and you're not entirely sure what he's going to throw and he's working quickly against you. I would say that's advantage Manoa. Yeah, well, it certainly worked last year. He's got uh, good stuff, really good stuff, and a great approach. And even if the numbers say that you know he might be due for some regression in 2023. It's kind of interesting when you look at the the contrast with Kevin Gosman, because Kevin Gosman is someone when you start looking at his numbers and, you know, we talked about this at times last year, but it kind of bears repeating at this point as we start up a new season. But the numbers for him, like it, it really reinforces just how much the Blue Jays defense let him down at times. And some of this is just bad luck. Like it's it doesn't mean that the Blue Jays were wrong to position their fielders the way they did for Gosman last year, but it didn't work. And the fielders themselves, you know, maybe they just had their worst days of the season when Gosman was out there. But whatever the case, you look at his FIP, 232, a full run lower than his ERA. I mean, he had a good ERA, but his FIP was a full run lower. The BABIP of 364 against Gosman, the highest in the major leagues last year, 364. Number two on that list, by the way, Jose Barrios at 328. So, you know, that motivated the Blue Jays to go out there and try to find 
some improvements defensively, which obviously they've done with the likes of Kiermaier and Varsho. But, you know, you replace Teoscar and Lourdes with Kiermaier and Varsho. You have potentially some better luck behind Gosman. This is a guy who gets tons of strikeouts to begin with. He's someone, in my opinion, who, you know, if there's a Cy Young finalist on this staff in 2023, I could very easily see it being Kevin Gosman. 100% if he has the stuff that he had last year. And the way to know what that BABIP says for Kevin Gosman versus what it says for Jose Brios, like, is to look at um, not only the strikeout walk totals, but to look at Gosman's career average which yeah. is uh, like 314. <laughs> so he had a 364 OBP, uh, what, the high, or OBP, excuse me, a 364 BABIP, the highest by qualified pitcher since 1961. FYI. Wow. Uh, <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, and, and you can get even deeper into this stuff. I mean, he, Gosman led MLB in hits against him off balls that had less than a 200 expected batting average. There's like 29 of those. He had the third worst outs above average played behind him of any pitcher across baseball. So that speaks to the defense that was played behind him. It was really a combination of things, right? It was unideal positioning for him. And it was also just poor defense played behind him. So you double barrel those two things and it's you really have a problem. And I think the Blue Jays learned as the season went on. You saw them just starting to play straight up with Gosman uh as the you know as the season went on and they learned him and I think they kind of learned the uniqueness of the splitter and how that pitch or perhaps Gosman's splitter in particular creates a lot of unexpected contact I think he just gets a ton of like mishit balls that don't go where um like an analyst's model might expect them to because a lot of that positioning data is based off of track record over like Years and years and years and years. Historical batter tendencies, right? Like anticipated pitch movement, kind of location in the zone, swing pass, stuff like that. That's all accumulated over years and years and years. But I think that the Blue Jays realized Kevin Gosman's splitter sort of broke the formula and broke the model a little bit and just some of the contact that he was getting against it. And then maybe some of the contact he would get against his fastball up in the zone as well as hitters were like swinging down to guard against the splitter also created contact and balls in play that you wouldn't expect so i think all that went into the insanely bad luck that he experienced last year and uh if he can keep the strikeout and walk and home run rates where they were last year and have the luck regress a bit the babbit regress and maybe even have a little good luck go his way and have some better positioning and defense played behind him which i think certainly will be the case on both fronts considering the personnel and deployment you're likely to see Absolutely. Kevin Gosman, if healthy, could be a Cy Young candidate. Yeah, I could see it for sure. And it's, you know, looking back at last year and the way things unfolded, it's hundreds of batted ball events that occurred. So it's not a tiny sample, but it's still not a huge sample. Like there still is room for some randomness in the course of whatever it is, five or six hundred batted ball events. Some of those are going to be lasers that no one catches, but some of those borderline ones, you could have a year just like anything else. There can be some streakiness to defense. There can be some streakiness to offense, and, and there certainly can to batted balls. So, you know, I think just by virtue of starting fresh, you know, clean slate, um, you certainly wouldn't expect it to be as, as much bad luck again as Gosman experienced in 2022. So I think it's going to be really interesting. And, um, you know, he's had some adjustments of his own to make as far as his delivery and what that looks like. Um, But uh, covering the first start that he made of the Grapefruit League, 
he seemed actually pretty content with it, which, you know, I honestly wasn't expecting just given how much of an adjustment it is for him to come to that full stop when he's normally doing that sort of side to side rocking as he's coming set. He did seem to find a way to be able to come to a full stop and deliver the pitch. Yeah, I just don't think it's going to be that big of an adjustment for him. Kevin Gosman's been making adjustments like his entire career, right? Remember, he's a he's a late career breakout guy. Uh, he didn't get to this level until he was, what, 28, 29. He was making adjustments all throughout the Baltimore years. I mean, he made adjustments throughout the the non-tender year in you know, Atlanta, and he was in Cincy for a while. Um, I mean, this is a guy who has had to reinvent himself a few times, so I don't think that this will be that dramatic of a change i think if anything he probably feels that he just cannot kind of influence hitter timing as much maybe or like he can't do some of the sort of the tricky stuff that he did against hitters last year but it might just be a case of learning different tricky stuff because you talk to chris bassett and it's like this guy has a whole bag of tricks that he's waiting to spring on hitters this year he showed a little bit of it in his uh outing uh this week but i don't think he's going to be like max scherzer in this and putting it all on display i think chris bass is going to save some of his trickery for the regular season and some of his manipulation of the pitch clock to to put hitters in uncomfortable situations for the regular season so i am very interested to see just how that plays out yeah it's going to be really cool i think even watching bassett use the pitch com device that was on his glove with danny jansen it was really interesting. We were both covering that game, and it was really interesting just to hear him talk afterwards about the purpose behind it. Because as you said on last week's podcast, we're not yet sure if that's going to be permitted during the regular season. So it's not necessarily done with a view toward uh, you know opening day or, or the first series of the season against the Cardinals. It's more so this is an instructive way for Chris Bassett to show Danny Jansen how it is that he wants to use his seven pitches. And I think that's so interesting. They'll probably use it again, but it's just, it's almost this learning on the fly, which is what spring training should be. I mean, it's a great chance to experiment and for these guys to get to know each other a little bit better that way. And then, like you say, when it starts to, to count and when the season begins, there will be a chance at that point for some even further experimentation and messing of timing by Bassett when he's facing hitters in games that count. Oh, hell yeah. Chris Bassett and Max Scherzer have been talking about these strategies since like mid last season when it became clear that the pitch clock was coming to MLB. They have been planning and plotting diabolical things for this for a while. So the sooner that Bassett can have the pitch decided with Danny Jansen, I think the better for him in terms of using the clock to his advantage and either trying to speed up hitters or force hitters to take their time out or getting hitters in a spot where they've taken their time out. And now you are like the hitters in there with eight seconds and you are holding that ball until there's one tick left on the clock. And then you're starting your delivery and you're forcing that hitter to like stay ready and to stay like coiled right as a pitcher. I think, and you would have seen some video of Max Scherzer's bullpen. He was actually practicing holding the ball for that long and kind of holding his um his delivery until the moment you can go i think just from talking to some people it's easier for a pitcher to hold that position for that length of time than it is for a hitter because you think about a hitter yeah. you're kind of bouncing you're kind of on your back leg you're loaded up you're like yeah. fast twitch you're geared up particularly against scherzer when it might be upper 90s maybe it's a little different against bassett when it's low 90s but still 
I and, mean, and hitters yeah. hitters too are loaded tight like a spring at that point. You know, it's like they're at their max, like they're they're really pulled back. Whereas pitchers have yet to start their their motion if they're in that set position. Absolutely. So I think it's easier for a pitcher to hold that for eight seconds than it is for a hitter. So pitchers could put hitters in some really uncomfortable scenarios if they've already used their timeout and they're running the the risk of having a a strike called against them if they if they use another one. So I expect Chris Bassett to be you know Bassett, Granky, like Scherzer, a lot of these like wily old veterans. I think are going to kind of set the standard for how the pitch clock is weaponized by pitchers uh and it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the league kind of adapts to that and and who follows and lockstep behind them uh the other thing about bassett by the way like right now keeping something in the tank velocity wise very interesting to see him doing that through spring that's it's not like his stuff is down it's he's saying hey man it's march 8th i think we talked about this last week on the podcast but it bears mentioning again that Chris Bassett is purposefully not throwing as hard as he can right now because uh as as he as he told me I want to log innings through I don't want to like light up radar guns in March I want to haul innings through June July and August and then I want to be making postseason starts feeling my best in October so that's why he's holding something back right now the Jays would be thrilled with that um with that plan so um that that definitely makes sense uh before we step aside here so i do want to ask you one other question uh, with respect to the starting rotation and i i have a guess as to how you might answer this because uh you know i i just have a guess opening day starter you know to some extent this is maybe in the category of things like pitcher wins that you know don't really matter you know it's just one game out of 162 it doesn't count for more and maybe it's a media talking point more than anything else at the same time, the players do care. You know, I've in the course of talking to guys who are named opening day starters over the years, there's always a a, a certain amount of um, prestige that goes along with that. The players certainly value it. So it's March 8th. There's still three weeks to go before opening day. But how do you think the Jays handle that? I think Alec Manoa will start opening day. And I think players do care. Uh, I actually haven't talked to many players who have said they don't care i don't know if i've talked to any but also you would only ask someone about that like someone who could potentially make an opening day start so uh i don't know if you ask like matt peacock you might be like yeah i don't care uh but (laughs) i yeah if you ask you know the principles involved i think they absolutely do care and i think it will be alec manoa yeah, we also only ask them about this in March. We never ask them, hey, August 15th. Um, <laughs> hey, by the way, uh, apropos yeah. of nothing, what do you think? You know, they don't care about at that, at that point. No one does and no one should. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it will be Manoa. Um, and my reasoning would be that he was the Cy Young finalist last year. So is that the reasoning that you would also apply? Yeah, so I, I think so. I don't, I haven't dove too deep into like what the thought process is behind it to be completely honest with you i just uh, have a very strong sense it's going to be manoa if if it was you making the decision who would it be manoa yeah yeah I and, it, and it would be it's just like i think gosman's going to have the best year right uh, you know i i think gosman is going to have the best year and if if they if the blue jays had a must-win game you know, it's splitting hairs because they're both very good pitchers. But I think for some of the reasons that we just outlined, you look at the strikeouts that Gosman generates, you look at his track record in the major leagues, I, I think he's going to have the best year. But I would have Manoa start opening day because he had the best year last year. And opening day is, to some extent, uh, a 
way to honor the pitcher who had the best year the previous season or even the previous 10 seasons. You know, like it can be something that you just sort of have over over time. Like I'm sure there were years that Roy Halladay started opening day for the Blue Jays where, you know, like the year he took a Kevin Menchline drive off his shin, maybe he started 15 games. But yeah, it's going to be Roy Halladay who starts because you earn that honor over time. Yeah, and I I probably approach it from like way too analytical of a place, right? Like I should use some of the soft science you are, and that yeah, it should be Alec Manoa. But I would start Kevin Gosman on opening day for the reasons that you said, because I just think that he's going to have the better year, and I think Alec Manoa is going to have a tremendous year. Like I think yeah. Alec Manoa, Alec Manoa might have like a two five ERA this year, right? It'd probably get Cy Young votes again. I think Kevin Gosman could have like a two three ERA this year. You know, yeah. like I just, they're both exceptional. They're both really good. There's no wrong answer. But to me, it's like I just want the best guy pitching most often. So if I start Kevin Gosman on opening day, I give him the most opportunities to pitch the most often. As you know, what as marginal as that is, that is actually kind of the way I would look at it. And there's an off day after opening day. So it's not just one day. You're buying yourself two days there. So, I mean, it, you know, it's not nothing. It's not zero. Um, but I, I think probably safe to say, well, I don't know if it's safe to say, uh, but let's let's let the record state that at the letters is predicting um, that it would be Alec Manoa who makes that start on opening day. All right, we'll come back in a little bit and we will discuss Vlad Guerrero Jr. and more when we continue on at the letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to At The Letters and Arden. Somehow we made it through 28, 29 minutes of Blue Jays discussion, barely mentioning Flag Guerrero Jr. So let's rectify that right now. He is not going to be participating, at least in the initial stages of the World Baseball Classic. He's withdrawn from that tournament after pulling up at second base on Friday with some discomfort in his right knee. The Jays ended up doing some imaging on that to get a sense of whether there was structural damage. There was not. So that's good news for the Blue Jays. Good news for Vlad Guerrero Jr. as they avoid further scares. And he's now starting to ramp up towards some baseball activities again. But clearly not good news for the Blue Jays. Not good news for Vlad Guerrero Jr. What do you make of this? Yeah, I feel like we haven't mentioned it because it's kind of elementary, right? Um, if it's the regular season, how many games does Vlad miss with this? Like, is it even an IL stint, you think? That's a good question. Right. I, you know, he's going to miss a week of spring games. So I'm guessing they would, in the regular season, they probably try to uh, not put him on the IL. Yeah, you know, right. they probably try not to and maybe end up doing it. But yeah, I think that's fair to say. They probably give him like a couple days off, see if there's an off day they can work around there and then bring him back with some DH at bats and, uh, you know, pinch running for him late in games. Right. Uh, because look here on uh, on Wednesday, Wednesday evening, as we record this, uh, I mean, he was hitting in the cages today. Like he was taking ground balls. He was doing some running. He's not doing anything laterally. But I think a lot of this is just like abundance of caution right you got three weeks until opening day there's absolutely no reason to rush anything like last week Whit Merrifield was out of games for four days with a uh like he's something grabbed in his right quad uh and he comes back into a game and he's immediately stealing bases and sliding around and diving after stuff and getting froggy at second and running all over the place and like looks like Whit Merrifield and it was yeah it's just an overabundance of caution at this time of year because why would you ever 
risk anything getting worse. Like there's just no need. And it's funny, the more you talk to players, the especially veteran players, you realize like how few spring plate appearances they really need. <laughs> just yep. how little they need. Um, like I, what, Brandon Belt had nine last year and homered on opening day. You know, and he hasn't had one yet this year, and I have no concerns about his availability for opening day. Well, and you know, it's funny because we talked about this last week as well. And you know, in the last few days, I forget when exactly, I asked him, you know, how he's how he's doing, um, how he's coming along, and he's he made that exact point where he's like, you know, what I had something like fifteen at bats total the last three years in spring training, and he's good to go. And again, you know, we we've spoken about you know, how some of these players who are really young, like a Vlad Guerrero Jr., who's still 23, turning 24 soon, really young guy, but he's been around baseball for so long. Like, this would be at least his sixth big league spring training. You know, he's had the chance to go through these rhythms, to go through this preparation. He has all kinds of reps against live pitching. It's not to say that you just go and stand in there cold. Of course, he's going to need time, but this makes this is the time for caution. This is not the time to try to push through something. It's not the time to try to, you know, prove something to anyone. Like it just these games really don't matter. So as long as he's ready for when they do, that's the important thing. Brandon Belt had four multi-hit performances in his first six games last season. He had nine spring training plate appearances. I mean, there's, yeah. you, guys just don't need that many. And look, even in the case of Vlad, he still has some of the hardest hit balls in this camp. I mean, he was just crushing the ball. Uh, like him and Rainer Nunez have, you know, populate the top like 10 hardest hit balls in this camp because, yeah, Vlad, he just doesn't need that much time. It's the same thing with Alejandro Kirk. John Schneider said the other day, like, yeah, he just rolls out of bed and finds the barrel. I, sp- I was talking to a Blue Jay, like, I, I can't even remember what day it was now, but they looked me dead in the eye and they're like, Arden, I cannot stress to you enough <laughs> how little spring training matters for certain hitters. I'm sure that there's some guys who want to play a lot. Santiago Espinal wants to play a lot. Bo Bichette right now working on some approach things, trying to see a lot of pitches, wants to play in a lot. Great. Power to them. Like, do it. But there are other players who right now are like, get me to the end of spring because I'm ready to go. Like I could step into a regular season game right now and be competitive. I am. I don't need to see live pitching. We have high velocity pitching machines. We have pitching machines like trajects and eye pitch that throw cutters and curveballs and sliders. I can literally punch in to a computer on this machine, throw me Zach Greinke's repertoire, and it will do that. So I, I can see stuff i can see velo i can feel that anxiety like just get me into a big league regular season environment as soon as possible please yeah and it's you know it is interesting and i think it's worth mentioning that vlad jr has missed a total of three games in his three full seasons in the major leagues so that is pretty impressive that shows you that there is a extreme level of eagerness and dedication when it comes to taking the field at the same time You know, there's got to be some level of concern here. And I'm not trying to be like overly dramatic in saying this. I'm not saying that it's like a, you know, a a massive issue and the Jays need to go out and get, you know, another first baseman or something. But it's not good. Like Vlad Jr., you want him to be fully, fully healthy. And I'm not saying, you know, these things happen when when you're playing sports at this level, when you're playing sports in these environments, even a spring training game. These guys are competing. There is a certain level of competition that's there. 
And so these things happen. I'm not saying it's Vlad Jr.'s fault, but there has to be a certain level of concern that he is at least dealing with this at this point and that there is that level of unknown. Just to me, like I, it's so hard to comment on without knowing exactly what's going on. The Blue Jays are calling it inflammation. So that really doesn't tell us anything. Like, Ben, you and I are dealing with inflammation right now. Sure are. A lot of people who listen to this podcast are experiencing inflammation right now. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to experience a lot of inflammation throughout the regular season. So if that's when that's all we know, it's impossible to really comment on how concerning this should be. But also, if you put the MRI in front of me, it's not like I could read it. It's not like I could say, oh, no, right? Like, it's this. So uh, the fact that they sent him for an MRI suggests that, like, there was some concern on their end that it could be something. But the Blue Jays also have communicated that there were no structural concerns there. So it's like a classic we'll see situation if he's on the il with a knee injury in june we'll probably be looking back at this but i also wouldn't be surprised if we get to the end of the regular season and on vlad jr's reference page it's 160 games played and like 700 plate appearances uh yeah i wouldn't be surprised at all if that's the case um and I think that's still the the target, clearly, for the Jays and for Vlad Jr. Um, I think that's still a realistic target. Um, I, I guess when I say there's some concern or, or I see reason for some concern, it's simply because he hasn't he's going to miss, you know, essentially a week's worth of games. And you wouldn't do that if it was nothing. I mean, even at this point in spring training, when you have the luxury of time, you don't have to force it. If he was feeling really, you know, fully his normal level, he'd be in there every second game trying to get some reps. And so this is an indication that there is something that he's feeling there that's that's limiting him to some extent at this point. I think that he's doing that just he wants something he wants to play some games. Like he just wants something to do. He's around. I honestly like I don't think this is going to impact his production. Like having missed spring training games, I just don't think that's going to impact his production in the regular season. Yeah. And and I think it's more so if he was fully healthy and he missed these games, no problem. He could he could recover. It would it would not impact it at all. To me, it's more a question of like, well, if he's missing these games, it's a reflection that he's not fully fully healthy. Um, you know, clearly he he pulled out of the WBC uh, for the time being. That was a decision that he made, not one the Jays forced on him. Vlad Jr. decided to do that. He wants to to prioritize his work and time with the Blue Jays. But I, I don't think that's a decision he would have made if there were zero physical you know, limitations or restrictions. And so the fact that there are some of those um, issues physically, minor though they appear to be, it, it's not good. Yeah, no, he'd love to get the hell out of spring training and go play some games that matter. Absolutely. Yep. I think he'd yep. like to do that. <laughs> well, you, you heard it here first. Ben says panic. Uh, I Look, he, he hit... <laughs> In the cages today, he's fielding grounders. He's running. Uh, the fact that he's running, like if it was serious, serious concern and it was really, really bad, I don't think he'd be running at this point with three weeks to opening day. And I don't think it's really bad. I just think it's, you know, it's a little concerning. So we can we can perhaps leave that there um, for now with, of course, more Vlad Jr. content coming as we learn more throughout the spring and obviously into the season. But let's also touch on another one of the young players in Blue Jays camp, someone even younger than Vlad Jr., Ricky Tiedemann, pitched again his second spring appearance of uh, 2023. 
And we talked last week about how dominant he had been against the Tigers. And then facing the Pirates the other day, you were there in Bradenton. It was not as good. Uh, So what did you take away from that? Yeah, Ricky got touched up by a couple of really good hitters, Andrew McCutcheon and uh, and Carlos Santana. And so it's interesting, some context on what, what happened there. Ricky Tiedemann takes the mound and realizes, oh, no, my pitch calm isn't working. Like Rob Brantley is punching in the digits, the uh, the buttons, and he's, Ricky Tiedemann's hearing nothing. Time called. McCutcheon and the Pirates bench are kind of making a bit of a, a ruckus about it because it's what about the pitch clock that had started? What are we doing? What's going on here? What do you mean he gets to change out his pitch calm crowd booze? Obviously, it's not like a it's not like Yankee Stadium crowd or anything like that, but still, like five thousand people are booing you, and you're twenty. It's your second big league spring training outing. That's some pressure. Tiedemann gets the new pitch calm, but can't get it aligned in his hat, so he can't really like hear still even though this pitch calm the new one is functioning he still can't really hear what Brantley is is punching in and now the pitch clock's really going so Tiedemann gets sped up in his delivery because he starts getting worried about the clock starts just pumping fastballs and leaving them in really bad locations left about one in a bad location Andrew McCutcheon who didn't hit it well but just hit a perfect chopper to third to beat out an infield single and then very next pitch Tiedemann throws a heater to a guy in Carlos Santana who Rob Brantley was like was sitting on that fastball because he had seen everything that had happened prior and knew Ricky Tiedemann was coming at him with a heater and he was in the words of Rob Brantley selling out for fastballs I I knew that that's what was going to happen and lo and behold Carlos Santana stays with it and hits it over the right field wall that's not what you want Obviously, you want Ricky Tiedemann to strike out everybody in the world and never give up another hit again. But I also don't think that the Blue Jays are upset that Tiedemann faced that adversity because they got to learn how he responded and they got to learn what happened next. And what happened next? Tiedemann comes right back with the theater. Strike run one on like on the next batter. And what happens after that? He throws nine of his next 15 pitches for strikes and he like gets out of the inning with look, he had to pick a guy off and Dalton Varsho had to throw somebody out um but also gets out of the inning with like a really nice sort of backdoor third strike slider to I forget the hitter but like a beautiful pitch that he dropped in and then comes out for his second inning it was like six pitches and just like easy breezy and it was back in the dugout like that composure, that metal so what you hear about Ricky Tiedemann in the minors, that like this guy doesn't rattle, that he is just unfazed when stuff goes wrong. For a 20-year-old in his first big league spring training to have all of that going wrong and all of that happening to him with all the expectations around him and with all the pressure that you know he's putting on himself for him to respond like that and to show that composure and to not get like in his own way and to not start walking guys and get rattled. That, as somebody uh, put it to me, was big league. Like, that was what big leaguers do. So I think that that was really important. Ricky Tiedemann will make his spring training debut. The numbers through A-ball and double-A last year included 18 trips to the hill, 117 strikeouts, and 78 and two-thirds. Blew him away at 99. Baez into the glove. One down. For sure. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's really interesting to watch these young players go through adversity. And it's really revealing a lot of the time about what kind of big leaguers they have the chance to be. Um, I think with someone like Ricky Tiedemann, 
there's clearly a lot of confidence, maybe even swagger behind what he believes that he can do on a mound. And it is reminiscent of Manoa, um, even a, a Marcus Stroman at times, where you know these pitchers throw it over the plate. They want to challenge hitters with their stuff. And it, that's why you know when Manoa gets into those innings where maybe he ends up allowing a couple runs or he throws 35 pitches in an inning, and then, as you said earlier in the podcast, he'll still be pitching in the sixth or seventh inning of that game because he throws strikes and he lets his defenders help him out behind him. And that's something that Tiedemann obviously did the other day against the Pirates. But those are those are big steps to take. And not every prospect coming up uh, is able to adjust in that way. So I think that's very fair to say that there's a positive uh, within that for Tiedemann as he continues to face really some of the best hitters he's ever faced. And I talked to Ricky after the outing and he I talked to him about that Santana pitch. And he was like, yeah, like that's, you know, look, I was sped up, not a pitch I should have thrown. I knew it, you know, in the moment I was just trying to like, I was just not, you know, violate the clock and deal with everything that was going on. Uh, but we're going to run that back. Me and him. That's what Ricky said to me. <laughs> we're going to yeah. run that back. Him and Carlos Santana. I was like, oh, the, he has that big league energy that I got from Bo Bichette when I first met him when he was like 19 or 20 that I got, like you said, from Alec Manoa when I first met him when he was first drafted. Like you said, same thing with Stro, man. Like same, like there is a big league energy that certain guys have. Asin Barger has it as well. Ricky Tiedemann has it. He has it on the mound and he has it off as well. Yeah, there's a certain swagger. And some guys don't have it and they're still big leaguers, you know, so not everyone in the big leagues walks around like that. Um, we won't probably, name them as willingly. No, but yeah. no, I'm not, I don't want to start any fights because they all have much more energy, uh, much more of that energy than we do. We should say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't have minor league energy. <laughs> do you have indie ball energy? I can get behind the nice indie ball matchup. That's for sure. Um, but I'm not going to. Yeah, it's a, it's a different mat. I think it's a different question when you're talking about competing. And, and you know, it's the athletes who are the most confident in what they can do um, oftentimes do bring that swagger because they they're excited to compete. Competing is fun for them because they win and they get results. And that's reinforced over time. So competing is not like, you know, they're not the kid in the gym class who, you know, doesn't doesn't have the. You know, whatever it is they, you know, they, they don't want to do the beep test, whatever the thing is. These are the kids who like it. It's fun <laughs> for them. So, you know, that and that carries over and we see that um, with the likes of Tiedemann. And let, let me follow up as well. Like these are the these are the things Ricky Tiedemann's working on because like his stuff is dominant, right? Like we he could get big league hitters out today. He could be an effective high leverage relief arm today. I promise you. The Blue Jays aren't trying to develop him into that. They're trying to develop him into Alec Manoa. They're trying to develop him into like 31 starts and 180 innings and starting playoff games, right? Alec Manoa started game one of a wild card series. They want to be putting Ricky Tiedemann into similar positions. So they this is kind of the stuff is like, how do you deal with adversity? When your fastball gets hit and you go into the dugout and your catcher, Rob Brantley, who you haven't worked with that much before, is telling you, hey, we're staying with this pitch and I need you to trust it. And Ricky Tiedemann is like, yeah, of course, I'm going to stay with it and trust it. And comes back out pumping fastballs like that is the stuff like that's when you hear the blue jays talk about like routine and mentality and stuff that happens off the mound right it's his arm care it's when he lifts it's his commitment to work and to nutrition and to sleep it's it's all of these things that are going into it we talked to a, a bit about it last year i mean this is the stuff he is refining because like 
If you really want to nitpick, you could say, yeah, Ricky Tiedemann needs to be more consistent with his slider, but it's pretty good. And his changeups plus plus and his fastball is like 97 from the left side and it all comes out of a, you know, interesting arm slot and he moves it around and doesn't leave anything over the heart of the plate and he tunnels really effectively and he understands his stuff really well. So it's all that other stuff, game planning, understanding Hayer's swings, understanding what Carlos Santana is doing in that moment and understanding the pitch not to throw to him it's not getting into that hurry up baseball not getting spit up uh the, this is stuff Ricky team is working on it's the stuff he's going to go back to double a to work on to begin this year and probably begin with shorter outings uh because the blue jays are going to want to preserve him for later in the season when like hey in the second half you might be a big leaguer and in in a playoff chase you might be a big leaguer it might be as a starter might be as reliever depending on where our need is but Ricky Tiedemann could be a big leader in the second half if he continues working on these things if his workload is intelligently managed and he maintains his release point and his stuff holds up and all that there's a lot of ifs in there but there's a very real scenario where it's like big leaguer second half of the season start at double a two to three to four inning outings slow build up ramp up if he proves he's too good for that level up to triple a mid-season and then could be a big leaguer like pitching in a postseason race in 2023 and then maybe even on a playoff mound yeah, I mean, that's the thing with there are others on this uh, in this organization, whether it's Azuluetta or Hagen Danner, others who are really trying to prove themselves. And you kind of joke about it at times, you know, especially it's March and the games, you know, have a lot of, um, you know, moments in them where maybe the, the lineup isn't as as stacked as you're talking about with the twins earlier today. But any one of these pitchers in this Blue Jays organization has a chance to be getting big outs for this team. You know, if they if they can find their way into a bullpen and the Jays absolutely should be a playoff team, then you you never know who could be getting some of those big outs. You never know who could be closing out game five of an ALCS. So that's got to be an intriguing possibility for these um, for these players as they prepare for the season. And it, it does kind of lead me to maybe the the final topic for this week, Arden, and, and probably one that's maybe a bit more of a positive note um, than certainly the Vlad Jr. discussion. And to some extent, you know, Tiedemann struggles, although that's that's just part of it for a prospect, probably more neutral than negative. But, you know, as we're looking at, um, at this team, I, I'm wondering who you think could be a big breakout. You know, someone who could really go beyond what they've done before, someone who could go beyond what they did in 2022, because... You know, I was looking back at the 2015 Blue Jays, and that's a, you know, obviously that's a quite a team and not one that's that you can assume is is going to be the the norm in any way. But Kevin Pillar comes out with a five war season. Devin Travis, two war season. Ryan Goins had a two war season out of nowhere. Roberto Osuna was a rookie closer. He came out of nowhere. Chris Colabello, like this was a team that had so many guys who really jumped up a level and and really surprise people so as you're looking at this 2023 team who could be that for this for this group i i think of like the the fernandez's uh junior and and julian who both uh throw really really hard and probably don't get talked about enough in this camp like that's kind of like they both have upper echelon stuff and reasons why it hasn't really worked for them uh in the past for like for junior it's kind of like mystifying why he doesn't get more swing and miss gets a ton of ground balls but he hasn't gotten a ton of strikeouts for a guy who's like 99 with a like 90 slider and a 90 changeup. it's just kind of it's kind of odd but like there's something 
something there. And then like with Julian, it's again throws like he can get he can get triple digits. Uh and he's got a change up with like a huge speed discrepancy, but uh he's given up a lot of homers in his career and he's been a little bit wild at times. But also you look at his track record and it's like, wow, this guy didn't pitch for like three, four years. Uh, you know, he had Tommy John and then there were like some complications with his recovery and then the pandemic got in the way. But the, you would think that, you know, he probably lost himself a little bit over that time and lost a lot of development time, certainly. And there's probably a lot more to tap into in there. So like those are the two names that that come to mind is like, you know, being kind of off the radar guys who could surprise. Yeah. Where are you at? I mean, those are deep cuts. I think I'm going to go a little bit <laughs> Did more I go too, too deep? Oh, I mean, I don't think we can go too deep on ATL. I think our listeners are, would, would hopefully support us in that. But I, I think that, you know, for me, I might just go as simple as someone like Addison Barger, who's, you know, on the 40-man in big league camp, impressing now. No guarantees, right? Like, we don't know what's going to happen with him. He might not uh, live up to the potential at all. But there's a chance that he comes out debuts you know at some point this season and has an 830 ops or whatever the case um i mean i think that's or eric swanson had a great season with the mariners last year could he have the season of his life right now like could eric swanson go out there and pitch 65 innings with like a 38 percent k rate and a 2.5 percent walk percentage like those are the kinds of things that you know it ends up being like a one era and he's the you know best setup man in baseball those are the kinds of things brandon belt could hit 30 home runs like that's not a deep cut at all but i think that's the sort of thing that the best teams in baseball that happens for them like you don't become the best you don't win the world series if you don't have some of those things happen and so you know, as you try to imagine these different possibilities for the Jays, it's kind of fun to imagine what those might look like. I'm going to go deep again. Spencer Horowitz. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you mentioned Belt, right? And if you kind of, you pencil in Belt for some IL time, or even if the Vladdy knee thing, right, becomes some IL time, I think Spencer Horowitz is, is that guy who comes up. Uh, a left-handed bat, insanely disciplined huge walk rates in the minors big time obps had like a 15 percent walk rate last year and it is like it's as professional of an at bat as you could imagine but it's also as consistent of a plate appearance as you could imagine so like the guy just doesn't give up plate appearances starts 02 starts 30 whatever like he's just he's in it no matter what uh and i feel like over the course of like 500 600 plate appearances like that makes a big difference uh and the thing is as well is he's not just all disciplined with like no power there's a little bit of juice in there i've kind of i've heard like the exit velos could be 106 107 at their peak which is like not nothing uh, you know, the Blue Jays really liked his swing uh, in the draft and, you know, took a chance on him. And, uh, you know, it seems like there's actually a lot of contact ability there. And it's a really good kind of ability to find the barrel there as well. So, like, that's a, that could be a guy who kind of comes out of nowhere to make a, a big impact on this team. I'm not talking five wins, but, like, you know, if you get, like, a win, a win and a half out of a Spencer Horowitz, I feel like oh, that is yeah. really not the expectation right now the other name that i would raise and it really depends on where your expectations fall at this point i don't even know where to set them is you say kikuchi like yeah. where what's what is even the expectation of him at this point because last year i would have said okay the expectation is way too low whereas now after three strong spring outings like is the expectation too high well you know with kikuchi 
and we're not quite at over under season yet. Um, but you know, I think if the Jays get a win from him, like one war, if if he has if he posts an ERA uh under like four whatever the league average is, like let's say the league average ERA is four point two five. 4.3 whatever it is you it's know pretty high he, these days yeah let's uh, and I, I don't have it in front of me but i'm looking you know, it up right now let's let's say if kikuchi posts literally a league average era with 100 innings i think you take that in a heartbeat if you're the jays if he's given you two trips through each time out of a league average era you you would sign up for that and put it in permanent marker and just yeah. like lock that in today but the thing yeah. is though the upside is so much higher, right? Because it's if, higher. Yep. if he puts it all together, if and like, I don't know, am I about to put a Robbie Ray comp on him? Right. But like if he <laughs> Robbie Ray's this thing, I don't know. Right. But I, I, that's obviously like a once in a lifetime thing would happen with Robbie Ray. But Robbie Ray kind of was, you see Kikuchi at one point, walking everybody, giving up a ton of home runs, bouncing between starting in the bullpen, amazing, phenomenal stuff that he just like, couldn't figure out mm-hmm. and then the blue jays just got him pumping hard fastballs from the left side and nasty sliders and what do yeah. you see you say kikuchi doing in these spring outings is hard fastballs and this this slurve that he just learned and by the way the split change is still really sick so i the upside for kikuchi is so far beyond just a league average era and at the same time you know who else was Robbie Ray is Tyler Chatwood, and now he's pitching garbage time <laughs> innings against the Jays for the Pirates, trying to crack. The, you know what I mean? Like Tyler so Chatwood can, didn't have this level of stuff. I mean, unless he, I'm he, mistaken, he, he had pretty good stuff. He signed like a thirty something million dollar deal at one point. Like he was viewed as someone who could really, um, you know, or maybe it was twenty eight million. He signed like a multi multi year deal. Um, with the hope that his stuff could be harnessed and it just never happened. And, you know, I think that, I I think that with Kikuchi and I can't believe I'm saying this because I wrote (laughs) about him and I, you know, I really, you know, I, I find it to be a compelling story. And I think that I do think that he's better off physically and mentally than he was last year. And, uh, you know, it would be such a good story if it happens, but you know, I I think it's a big leap to say, because I think he'll be better than what he was last year when he had an ERA over five, but maybe that, improvement looks like a 4-4 ERA. And I think that would be totally fine. Okay, fair. Tyler Shotwood was throwing 96 at one point in his career. Um, that's fair. What, uh, 2019, he averaged 96. I, I had always thought of him as just like a spin rate darling. Uh, but no, it seems like there was, yeah, there was some velo there as well. Um, it's it's interesting with Kikuchi, man. Like I just, You just have to see it in a regular season environment, I think, before you're going to really even know what you're dealing with here like the true test will not come until that first week of april when he is by the way the fifth starter in this rotation yeah. um the, he just is uh like like mitch white is continuing to build up through a 43 pitch bullpen on the weekend he's gonna face live hitters on friday uh in a live bp uh and if that goes well like his next step would be like one to two innings in a in a game next week probably but like he's still obviously very delayed in his ramp up so you say kikuchi's opening the season as a fifth starter and it's going to be interesting to find out you just you look at some of the process stuff and it's encouraging the times that he has walked a hitter on four bat on four pitches uh in this camp he's come right back firing 
strikes. His uh, the the velocity on the breaking ball with a bit of a different angle, really encouraging. I think the Blue Jays all last year were trying to get him to up the velo on the breaking ball and use it down in the zone. Um, it took a while to take, so that's there. I mean, obviously the whiffs are there and the strikeouts are there. I think it's interesting that he's sort of leaning into the depth of his arsenal at times and using that change up more often. And when something isn't working, having other avenues to get hitters out. I watched him the other day in Bradenton uses fastball as an out pitch up in the zone. I was like, I don't remember too many times you say Kikuchi doing that last year, like understanding that the opponents were sitting spin on him and then using that spin to set up the heater up. Like I thought he used it really intelligently there um and i think that his tempo and his rhythm have been really good as well like he's just working at a better pace so some of the process stuff is interesting as well it is it is for sure i'm also going to throw in Otto lopez to my breakouts i could see him hitting you know 10 to 12 homers uh maybe that's aggressive but i could see him i could see him having like a sneaky good year for the Jays. so that's my last that's my last one that I'll throw in here. Yeah, one of my favorite questions to ask at this time of year, I was mentioning earlier in the podcast, just everybody being here, is you ask everybody, like, hey, who's your pick to click? Like, who's your sleeper? Who's your dark horse? Who aren't we talking about enough? And it's I've heard several times, Otto Lopez is not getting the love that yeah. he deserves. Um, and look, the guy hit like 300 in the minor leagues for his career. He's on base all the time. Contact ability is great. He's always putting the ball in play. He's got wheels uh, like it's a competitive plate appearance like he's if you like start Otto Lopez, the starting pitcher is going to throw like six to eight extra pitches between the two plate appearances Otto Lopez makes because he's just pesky. So like that matters. And also Otto Lopez has been in the cages working on some stuff with Guillermo Martinez and Hunter Mentz to add a, a bit more line drive contact a bit more loft to the swing and just get the ball up. The problem last year really was just too many ground balls. Like the ball's on the ground all the time. If he can just get that launch angle up and kind of gets stay through the ball and get some more line drive going with his contact ability, uh, I don't know that I would put a huge home run projection on him, but I do think that he is a guy who could be very productive at the big league level if he can, if he can you know, just get rid of, just change some of the shape of the contact that he's making. Yeah, the Jays will need a few breakouts like that for sure. Um, So we'll keep track of it here on ATL. As all of it unfolds, uh, Arden will be following your work um, as it continues coming in here. Look forward to reading some more pieces from you in the next little bit. Uh, But that is it for us this week on At The Letters. We'll be back next week with more Blue Jays talk, of course. But until then... Thanks to Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade for producing. Thanks to Arden for his insight from Florida. Thanks to you for listening. And we will talk to you soon on At The Letters.